You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Reducing humanity's collective footprint on a finite planet is my game. As returning listeners can probably appreciate, World Population Day is a very exciting time for PGAP and also for Sustainable Population Australia, who are proud supporters of this podcast. It has become a bit of a tradition to interview international colleagues on the sustainable population front in the three seasons that PGAP has been around, and the last episode was no exception. In addition to this episode, I had articles published in the Australian-based Your Life Choices Journal and the International Overpopulation Project blog. Both of these linked in the show notes if one is so interested. The episode performed very well, with PGAP receiving a lot of positive feedback in recent months. Anyhow, I got a lovely email the other month from an amazing PGAP listener, which read, I have to let you know how pressed I am with your podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts and yours is my equal favourite. The environmental problems population growth brings have worried me since I was a child. In my opinion, the radical right-wing business interests that own and influence our media have successfully plotted to silence discussion on population for the last 40 years. Your voice helps keep me sane. Oh, schmucks. And I have to say, it is listener feedback like this which keeps me sane. Things which keep me less sane are days like Earth Overshoot Day, which this year falls on the 28th of July. What is this Earth Overshoot Day of which I mention? I'm glad you asked. According to the Overshoot Day press release, don't forget the move the date hashtag, it says, Each year, Earth Overshoot Day marks a date when humanity has used all the biological resources that Earth regenerates during the entire year. Humanity currently uses 75% more than what the planet's ecosystems can regenerate, or 1.75 Earths. From Earth Overshoot Day until the end of the year, humanity operates on ecological deficit spending. So, if the aim is to last until the 31st of December, we've failed to do so since the early 70s. Because, you know, more of us consuming more shit, voting in for the wrong people who perpetuate neoliberalism with more of the wealth being owned by fewer sociopaths. That kind of thing. The pandemic actually improved the date placing by about 24 days, as many of us were stuck immobile. However, this has come to a stop now, with many of us flying off to Bali and back again, despite COVID-induced deaths being worse in Australia than they were when we were locked down. Go figure. The press release has a bit to say on this. Earth Overshoot Day 2022 lands on July the 28th, earlier than last year. Over 50 years of global overshoot have led to a world where aggravated drought and food insecurity are compounded by unseasonably warm temperatures. As the date indicates, humanity continues to widen its annual ecological deficit two years after the pandemic-induced resource use reductions exceptionally pushed the date back temporarily by 24 days. So, it giggles all round, hey? But needless to say, it would be remiss of PGAP or anyone in the degrowth or steady state movements to blink past this date. But who to interview for such an occasion? I found my mind wandering back to the first ever episode of PGAP, launched almost exactly two years ago. For this first ever episode of PGAP, I interviewed Jonathan Miller and Martin Tai, two Australian chapter directors of the Centre of the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, or Cassie for short. Although it has been assisted with the passage of time, this first ever episode of PGAP still enjoys the highest number of listens of all 42 episodes that have been unleashed to the world in the past two years. Good to know I started on a high note. I thought for this episode, the founder of Cassie, Brian Check, would be a more than ideal candidate. 
Brian and I met virtually half a year ago when he interviewed me on Cassie's Steady Stater podcast. I remember at the time saying this was the best on-air conversation that I've had to date, a sentiment that still holds. Around this time, Brian very kindly offered to be interviewed intern for PGAP. This was a few months ago now, which I'm a bit sheepish about. However, I was just looking for the right time. The time is now. <laughs> Brian Check is a perfect authority to speak to Earth Overshoot Day. And it was serendipitous that the day actually comes up a few times during our conversation. Brian talks to the history and formation of Cassie and how a transition toward a steady state economy is one achievable to this endless growth paradigm that may otherwise bring Earth Overshoot Day to the 1st of January, which none of us want. Without further ado, over to you now, Brian. Welcome back to PGAP, and I am sitting here with the great Brian Sheck. Now, Brian, given that, that you've been referred to as an eco-champion, an eco-hero, and a top 100 inspirational leader, excuse me for being a little starstruck in this interview as your reputation precedes you. So firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are your key life passions and motivations in life? And why do people love you so much? Well, I'm still waiting for that title, superhero. <laughs> Give it time. All right. Well, you know, my passions, I, I wear them on my internet sleeve. I mean, it is advancing the steady state economy. That's been uh, the most dominant theme in my life since my PhD research in the mid-90s. And I think it happened because several things sort of came together at that point in time. One was the research itself. I was uh, doing a policy analysis of the Endangered Species Act in the USA. And uh, as part of that, I'm looking at the causes of species endangerment. So I had this big database of all of the federally listed threatened and endangered species, 18 categories of causes why these species uh, were so imperiled. One evening it just struck me that this list of causes, it's, it's a who's who of the American economy. So that happened and at the same time uh, it was very common to hear on the radio, on, on television, it was common to hear that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. So that just flew straight in the face of something I was studying very intensely, you know, for my PhD degree. And so uh, I had to get into it. And the more I got into it, the more I saw that the profession of economics was woefully astray from ecological reality. And so I got into the ecological economics movement and and I got into what I started calling ecological macroeconomics because I didn't see a tremendous amount of utility, if you will, from the microeconomic exercises, you know, valuing natural capital and ecosystem services. I wanted there to be more uh, material on limits to growth and the fundamental conflict, the fundamentality of the conflict between economic growth and environmental protection to start with. And then as the years went by, you know, that there's a natural extrapolation from the conflict between growth and environment and uh, economic growth and even economic sustainability and a conflict between economic growth and national security for, you know, many nations on earth, national security and international stability. So yeah, that's, uh, that's been uh, a professional and that kind of overlaps in a personal life quite a bit too, you know, so... It's all interrelated. Well, on the Post Growth Australia podcast, Brian, I think you're in a safe place here with your <laughs> anti-growth sentiments. <laughs> now, you've taken this to the nth degree. 
you are the founding president of the Centre for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, or Cassie, as we all like acronyms. <laughs> now, anyone who has listened to the first ever episode of PGAP will have heard the good spiel for Cassie from uh, Jonathan Miller, the ACT chapter head, and Martin Tai, our New South Wales regional chapter. But tell us a little bit more about the timeline of Cassie and some highlights for the organisation over the years. I suppose we could start uh, a little bit pre-Cassie because Cassie was a natural outcome of some efforts that, that myself and uh, colleagues, friends and colleagues, uh, efforts that we attempted at least in the late 90s and early 2000s to put the lie to that, that rhetoric I mentioned, the win-win rhetoric that there is no conflict. We tried to get the Wildlife Society. We started with the Wildlife Society. We tried to get TWS to adopt a position on economic growth, explicating the fundamental conflict between economic growth and wildlife conservation. And that's when I first uh, got Herman Daly uh, involved. You know, he, we were allies in that effort. We co-authored an article in the, the uh, trade journal of the wildlife profession. Now it's called the Wildlife Professional. There were these efforts in the Wildlife Society, and then that extended to the Society for Conservation Biology and the American Society of Mammologists and and, uh, and the U.S. Society for Ecological Economics, all of them did then take a position on economic growth, stating that, yes, there is a fundamental conflict. So that was uh, got the ball rolling. We had parallel efforts in the American Fishery Society and the Ecological Society of America. Those were not as successful. And then uh, we had a number of special sections. We had took up a lot of pages in the, those journals back then, uh, Wildlife Society Bulletin, uh, Conservation Biology, on this topic. And then I used to do debates. I would debate economists out there like Dwight Lee from the University of Georgia. Debates on is there a conflict between economic growth and environmental protection. And finally, uh, I should mention that I was hired in 1999 as the first conservation biologist, by that title at least, uh, in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, and in particular, I worked for the land management arm, the National Wildlife Refuge System in the headquarters. And so I started to advance the steady state economy, if you will, uh, within the government. I have a, a weird history because I was, you know, way out in the field for years, for a decade and a half, and then I went into the ivory tower for the PhD. And then I went to the headquarters of U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And so I was maybe a little idealistic and maybe a little naive. And I thought, I'm really going to correct that win-win rhetoric. So I signed on with Fish and Wildlife. But I started to get gag orders pretty early on in my Fish and Wildlife career. I think the first one I got was in 2001. And then I got, I got five or six of them over the 18 years I was in headquarters. And so, Michael, that, that's why I established Cassie in 2003, because I was shut down in the government, I'd shut down and shut up. And so I had to have another hat to wear, like to go to write about it or speak about it. And, uh, and I had, had a book that came out, Shoveling Fuel for a Runaway Train, in 2000. So uh, I was still giving a lot of talks, you know, pursuant to that. And, and then I also took on the, a role as an adjunct, a visiting professor, actually, at Virginia Tech in the National Capital Region of Virginia Tech. So then I could kind of rotate the hats depending on the, <laughs> the conference, the, the publication, whatever. I'm sorry, I didn't even get to Cassie yet, but, you know, that's the, the lead into Cassie now. Like anyone who wants to um, start an organisation, how did it come together? Is uh, Cassie growing and is it one of the few things we actually do want to grow, for example? Well, I think we would say it is. and nothing. We don't want anything to grow forever, right? I mean, that's nonsense. But we want Cassie to be bigger than the Cato Institute. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we want to have uh, our messaging 
prevail. And that takes uh, an optimum amount of personnel, staff, project funding, and all that kind of stuff. The, in terms of how you start something like that, well, you just got to dig in and get it done, you know. And I, we set up Cassie to be uh, uh, chartered by the state of Virginia. That happened in 03. Like a lot of startup nonprofits, it was sort of a placeholder for some years. And like I mentioned, I used it as a hat to wear. But uh, eventually, one of my colleagues in the Fish and Wildlife Service, Rob Dietz, he had a bit of an epiphany while he was still working there as a, a, a wildlife planner. And he decided to quit, and, and I recruited him. I encouraged him to quit <laughs> so that he would work for Cassie full-time, and he did that. And so then we started to develop as an organization, you know, uh, in terms of projects and staff and, and hosting volunteers and so on. And, and we did a lot of various kinds of projects. I'll tell you one thing we always had going, Michael, was, was that position on economic growth, the one, the sort of the core messaging. We always had that as, an, as a running project. So little by little, we got people to sign that position that empowered the message. You know, uh, by the year 2010, we probably had a couple thousand signatures on it. And we had, you know, some leading individuals in ecological sciences at least and in ecological economics. By now we have over 15,000 signatures and some of the leading lights in sustainability thinking are, are signatories and a handful of politicians, a uh, number of diplomats. On our, uh, our podcast, which you were on a few, uh, a month and a half ago or so, on that podcast, The Steady Stater, we're gonna have Chris Matthews and the Americans that hear that name, they're going to they're going to think, oh, is that the Chris Matthews from Hardball? That's <laughs> precisely the Chris Matthews we'll have on the podcast, and he's a Cassie signatory. So by 2011, we I didn't get an award then, but we as Cassie got an award called the uh, Best Green Think Tank from the organization Tree Hugger, and then. Uh, uh, Rob Dietz eventually left around 2000 or 2012 or so to work for the Post Carbon Institute in Oregon. We, we kept things going, you know, loosely, but finally I quit out of disgust, frankly. I quit the federal government. I was disgusted by the gag orders. They had gotten really extreme, too, and I, I've had a book manuscript 90% completed about this, for a couple of for several years now, I need to wrap that up. It's called "Gag Ordered No More." It describes the the whole awful history of suppression of ecological macroeconomics in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, extending out to other federal segments. And I uh, I myself will really look forward to that book because the issue, as we all know, of of true environmental uh, rescue, not just you know nice little platitudes, is so suppressed and indeed gagged as anyone us in the field who's tried to do like a mainstream systemic reform have all found out. Sorry, I had to snicker a bit when you said some ecological economists uh, signed up to Cassie because that always, almost sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, an ecological economist, but I know they exist. <laughs> yeah, check it out. Uh, it's, it's a struggling collection of folk at this point. It seems like that there was more unity in the ecological economics crowd uh, Back when Cassie was getting rolling, for example, I'll say something that probably a lot of people won't like, but the USSEE, for one, the US society, I feel has been a little bit, a little bit co-opted by neoclassical conventional microeconomics. And so it has lost the, the earlier uh, dailyist, if you will, focus uh, dailyist in terms of Herman Daly, dailyist focus on limits to growth and the need for a steady state economy uh, in the 21st century. 
but uh, that, you know, it's still a major part of the ecological economics paradigm, conceptual framework, and history, and, and I think it's going to return uh, full steam ahead in the next decade or two as the, the biggest theme in, in ecological economics. I've called this a decade of consequence in a few of my podcasts, so um, interesting times ahead. Now, speaking of podcasts, you also host Cassie's very own podcast, The Steady Stater. Uh, I've had the distinct honour of being on the podcast, which ended up being one of the best conversations I've had on air, both in and out of Gap. That even beats the conversation I had on mainstream media when I broke the presenters on the overshoot day. <laughs> broke, the, oh. broke their optimism down. Um, I feel a bit sorry for them, but, you know. But what got you into the podcast gig and what have been some of the highlights? And you don't have to say our conversation either. Well, I know I don't have to, but I too, uh, we... That was one of my favorite episodes where we will be producing episode 60 of the Steady Stater podcast next week. And the one with you definitely was one of the favorites. You're the only one who sang on a podcast episode, so that was a real bonus. But it was great <laughs> in general. First time for everything. <laughs> well, that's right. And, and remember now, we got to get your band, Choctopus, back, back on the podcast, <laughs> unplugged one of these times. Gladly. Yeah, in, in addition uh, to that one, you know, we had one with Dick Lamb, who was a relatively viable uh, presidential candidate back in the 90s. That was uh, astounding just by the, the mere factoids of the case, that this fellow becoming the governor of the state of Colorado largely on a message of limits to growth and, and you know, uh, anti-growth sort of platform. And then he, him becoming a 12-year, a, a three-term governor of Colorado. So that was, that was a fun interview. Uh, we certainly have had some very unique ones intellectually, one very recently with Chris Haney about the delisting of species, of endangered species, by virtue of the fact, if you want to call it that, that, they, that they've been deemed to be extinct now. So then they're delisted. And he focused in on a sort of an iconic species in USA, the ivory-billed woodpecker. And uh, yeah, listen to that one, because he went all over the, the conceptual and psychological map in, uh, with his implications from the delisting of that ivory-billed uh, woodpecker. You asked earlier, why did we start the podcast? And the answer to that is very simple. I, I'm sure I should have started with that, but we did it just as a another means to deliver our message. And, you know, we had heard that podcasting is kind of the, the thing right now, podcasting and mini videos and, you know, podcasting is a lot easier to produce and stuff like that. So, so yeah, we've we've been trying to stick with a weekly schedule of that, and uh, we feel that it has been effective. We've, with some of our guests, we have broadened the scope of uh, the the relevance of steady state economics. Yes, well, the great thing about podcasts is if we're going to be gagged by mainstream media, well, through podcasts we can become our own media. Exactly. <laughs> right on. So Cassie operates across the globe, and I've noticed a fair amount of Cassie enthusiasm in Australia. I've come across about five or six Cassie chapter directors in New South Wales and Queensland alone. Um, Jonathan Miller happens to be a de dear friend of mine. Uh, Hayden Washington is a big name for the academics among us. And Martin Tai is the reigning king of Twitterland, <laughs> as we all know. Um, has Cassie really resonated big time in Australia, or am I just reading into things? Well, Michael, all is relative, right? So big time <laughs> relative to the where steady state economics is on the radar of most countries in the world. Yes, it has resonated big time in Australia in terms of the relative to the, the major political parties. No, it's not on the, it's 
maybe scratching the edge of the radar. And that's progress, because I don't think it was on the radar at all. This is interesting. You know, I'd, this is a discussion where I'd like to have people like, uh, well, Herman Daly and, and Dick Lamb. Dick Lamb passed away this past year. Uh, so, mm -hmm. But I'm talking about folks that were there in the 60s and 70s when Herman Daly's stuff was coming out on steady state economics and, of course, the book Limits to Growth in, in 72 and the uh, the environmental movement, uh, including or culminating, maybe you would say, with the first Earth Day, these things sort of would be very relevant uh, to the, the question here. No matter what, there certainly was a dip in the profile, I guess we could say, of steady-state economics during the 80s, during supply-side economics, during the response to the uh, early the episodes of stagflation that extended into in the U.S. into the Carter presidency and so on, and and then there was a very much uh, a proliferation of pro-growth think tanking and pro-growth propaganda, which affected not only politics but the very curriculum that a generation or two of economists were studying at colleges and universities. For more on that, you may want to read the book Dark Money. I forgot the name of that author, but it's like deep dive journalism into the Koch brothers network and how they impacted it. think tanks and colleges and universities and political organizations all over the country and in some other parts of the world. Maybe their biggest mission was to make it an extremely pro-growth political economy. So in Australia, the, the sort of the resurgence of steady-state economics. I, you could help me understand why the sample size is not huge. You mentioned three Cassie chapter directors. So we could, I suppose, statistically wonder, is it just a, a, you know, a relic of statistical uh, variability? On the other hand, it did seem to me the couple of times that I've been there that there is a lot of sincere concern about the environment. There is a lot of consternation and, and concern about the uh, industry messing up this beautiful country that, that you're in there. And so folks like, certainly like Hayden Washington and, and Jonathan Miller and Martin Tai, they've been all over that. And they naturally latched on to Cassie and we're really, really glad they did because they have helped tremendously Hayden Washington, Hayden certainly was instrumental in one of the, the landmarks, if you will, there, because he managed to get the Australian Academy of Sciences to devote their annual uh, environmental conference called the Fenner Conference, as you probably know, the Fenner Conference, mm. the 2014 Fenner Conference. Yeah, and so if, Hayden, if you're out there, thanks again for that. That was huge. And like you said, Martin Ty is, is like the king of steady-state Twitterdom. Uh, <laughs> we had him running our Cassie Twitter account for some months when we were without a communications person here. And Jonathan Miller is, is, is also great. He, uh, I believe, is getting sort of more involved now as well as kind of uh, mirroring the, the general resurgence in steady-state economics. Uh, and you'd probably be delighted to hear that uh, Sustainable Population Australia, who support this podcast, are organising another Fenner conference for March this year. Now, this next question, it was to tell me more about the ideas and theory behind the steady state system. But I want to address that because I know you brought up a couple of times during this interview the fact that um, <laughs> you've experienced a lot of people uh, making the claim that growth and environmental conservation wasn't a conflict of interest. I've heard so many times people say, okay, you need a growing economy uh, because then you get the funds to, in order <laughs> to employ the rangers and, and to protect the national parks. Now, 
you know, they say that, but how come with so much growth, like the national parks in in, uh, USA and Australia have found themselves increasingly defunded while civilians get richer, of course. So I want to bring that argument into why the economic status quo is so harmful to the environment ourselves and what does steady state economics propose to put in its place? Well, let's go back to that the issue about funding of this or that conservation program or staff. Money isn't manna from heaven. And this is one of our specialties, I would say, at Cassie. We have pushed something we call the trophic theory of money, probably harder than, than anybody out there. It's going to resonate with your common sense, Michael. The trophic theory of money is simply that money originates via the agricultural surplus at the base of the economy, the agricultural and extractive surplus at the base, because that's what frees the hands for the division of labor and the exchanging of money for the products of that labor. Trying to buy your way out of environmental problems backfires. We call it the trophic conundrum, because to get more and more money, you have to have Uh, an expanding trophic base. It's that agro-extractive activity at the base that's what really generates the money for expenditure on all these other things. It's a fallacious argument that you're going to save the environment by growing the economy. This would get pretty complicated pretty fast, but pursuant to the second law of thermodynamics, it's not only a zero-sum game, it's it's a negative-sum game. You're going to lose more than you gain by trying to grow the economy and, and getting a little bit of that allocated to environmental, uh, environmental protection. The way to environmental protection, I'm sorry, it takes a, a, a strong, a diligent, a smart democracy. If you want to stick with the democratic political model, it takes smart, strong, convicted citizens that elect the right people that understand the the importance of regulation, law and policy and regulation, to protect the environment. I'll go back to that Endangered Species Act for a second. That ESA, this was, and this is the other thing that that pushed me off the edge to go whole hog into steady state economics. The Endangered Species Act ultimately is a prescription for a steady state economy because it's like a collection of stop signs. A species becomes imperiled, gets federally listed, the stop sign comes up. And what's what's it stopping? It's stopping those causes of endangerment, the, the who's who of the economy, whether it's in the USA or Australia or globally. The more those come up, it's not like everything is stopping, not at all. But you're you're developing a balance, one stop sign at a time. So it leads, if it is enforced the way it is written, it leads to a steady state economy, albeit a steady state with a lot of species out on their last twig on the tree, you know, the evolutionary tree of life. They're barely there, but they're there. They're protected. Hmm. uh, And the, the more that tree is protected, the more resilient those twigs are going to be as well buying our way past environmental problems is uh, it's a fallacious concept. This is a good time to share that you've written several books and countless academic papers on these issues alone. Um, if you had to recommend people start with one book of yours, what would it be? Or are, are they your favourites? <laughs> well, no, not by any means. <laughs> and there aren't that many. There, I guess you would say four, uh, if you count, five if you count edited volumes, but uh, me as sole author, there are three of them, and I would, I would recommend Supply Shock. Uh, I put yeah. a lot of time, nights and weekends time during that, that gag order riddled career in the government, and so it, the book Supply Shock took about 13 years after my first two books, Shoveling Fuel for a Runaway Train, and then the academic book on the Endangered Species Act. It's, I believe it's fairly comprehensive, and it's one of the few books you're going to read uh, and get the trophic theory of money presented to you. 
Actually, I want to tell you a little story, Michael. But... Good. We like stories. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I was, uh, I'm kind of old school. I was a wildlife manager before I went back to school for the PhD. My last full-time job in that sort of role was I was working for the San Carlos Apache tribe in Arizona. And they have the fourth biggest Indian reservation in the U.S. It's almost 2 million acres. So it's close wow. to the size of Yellowstone, Yellowstone National Park. That's where Geronimo is from. And, you know, it's a very, very fabled part of the Old West. They also happen to have the biggest elk in the world in terms of antler size. Roosevelt elk in the Pacific Northwest are a little bigger body size. So because of that, you have hunters out there. You know, the trophy hunting world is a very unique part, to put it nicely of society and uh, to put it not quite as nicely very weird part you have people obsessed with having their name at the top of the Boone and Crockett list for having killed the biggest ever yeah elk moose bighorn sheep and so on the one the last year I was there I was by then I was the director of the the wildlife department there the recreation and wildlife department we had managed to get a special hunt established so that we could sell for to the highest bidder three elk tags. Yeah, that year it was three elk tags, okay? A very special hunt right during the peak of the rut with nobody else out there on this huge reservation uh, with the biggest elk in the world. And we sold those tags for $43,000 a piece. Now that money was earmarked, Michael, for elk habitat improvement. So at first glance, you're thinking, well, here's an example. You're reconciling growth with environment because you're growing the tribal economy and you're spending that money on, we were buying out uh, cattle grazing leases, for example. Okay, well, who bought those elk tags? And see, this is the part that always gets overlooked. One guy bought two of them. He was the owner of the biggest old growth sawmill in the Pacific Northwest. Probably. <laughs> yeah. There's your trophic implication. You know, he's at the base of the economy uh, in a sector logging where he's in prime position for profiting uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, fighting against all of the laws and regulations like ESA that slowed down the uh, harvesting of old growth timber. So he made a fortune. He, he would fly down to the reservation in his private Learjet. And so he paid $86,000 for these two elk tags. But how did it happen? By liquidating all this old growth timber. So that should tell it, you know, that was an insight to me about later on, some years later when I heard that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. You know, I started putting all these both uh, uh, hypothetical, conceptual, and theoretical lessons together with the empirical evidence on the causes of species endangerment. And it just led me to conclude that there happens to be a very profound conflict between economic growth and, and, and biodiversity conservation. And then biodiversity, that's like the collective canary in the coal mine of the environment. And for me too, there's a lesson there that um, good intentions and good ideas and good projects that may be perceived as, you know, doing a good things for the planet can just so easily be appropriated and subsumed um, by neoliberalism. Underlying everything we do needs to be a move towards really chronic systemic change otherwise you know neoliberalism is just going to find a way to crawl in under and turn everything upside down that but that's been my experience anyways now someone else who doesn't like capitalism is Anitra Nelson so not long ago uh, you were interviewed I saw the broadcast I think about six months ago on EarthX TV alongside Anitra Nelson a flag bearer for the degrowth movement and a previous guest on PGAP. Now it was interesting to see steady state and degrowth side by side if only because when I started in this gig I used the terms interchangeably and got into trouble by advocates of uh, both sides of the fence. 
So I'm really curious from your angle, um, what are the similarities between steady state and degrowth ideas and what, what might be some of the key distinctions? Most importantly, if I were to ever to use the terms interchangeably again, how many life sentences do you think I deserve? <laughs> well, I think you only get one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's it's an overblown uh, uh, controversy. Really, we're all in the same page. We we all recognize limits to growth. We all uh, want a sustainable level of production and consumption of goods and services. But we do have to realize that the word degrowth is used in two quite distinctive ways. One is uh, the capitalized degrowth, if you will, that represents a broader political movement in Europe. Then there's the uncapitalized and hyphenated, a lot of times, degrowth, which is, you know, the, the clearer uh, meaning of not a growing economy, but a, a receding economy in terms of its presence, its level of activity, its footprint. And so we have kind of uh, begun to favor the phrase degrowth toward the steady state economy. We were, I would say we were part of the original degrowth movement pretty much from the get-go. I was at some of the earlier conferences in Paris and, and Barcelona. And so we've been there from the start, but uh, over the years, that capitalized degrowth political movement has taken on, as any broadening movement will, other elements that, first of all, may not know, know too much, for example, about ecological macroeconomics. They're honed in on social justice issues, for example, and that's a great thing to be honed in on. But as a result of that, sometimes then, as you've experienced in the population stabilization uh, work, you get uh, uh, some strange political bedfellows popping up that say, well, wait a minute, we can't be talking about population. That's a, that's a you know, colonialist sort of elitist concern. That, that kind of stuff mm. is something that we wrestle with, you know. But in general... I would say degrowthers and steady staters are becoming more united again like they were originally, little by little. Uh, we've had uh, Timothy Parikh on the Steady Stater podcast a number of times, and you know he's been a great uh, uh, spokesman for the degrowth movement, I feel, and I think he's helping to, toward the unification. One other thing you and Anitra both share is a similar stance on the controversial issue of overpopulation, which you just kind of brought up. So that's a fantastic lead in, Brian. Thank you. In fact, um, CASI is unique in being an established multi-issue organisation, dare I say, that is unafraid to be open and frank on this issue, which is actually so rare. So for the record, what is your personal take on population? Um, and what is Cassie's organizational take? Stabilized population is an elementary aspect of, of a steady state economy. You know, I'll use a metaphor from the government now. I had the gag orders in the government, and we in headquarters, we started referring to economic growth as the 800-pound gorilla. Everybody saw it in the room. Nobody could talk about it. 800-pound grill. Well, the grill has got two arms. It's population and per capita consumption. You have to wrestle with both arms or you're still going to get beat up, beat down, and <laughs> unsustainableized by that gorilla. you got to deal with both population and per capita production and consumption of goods and services. Now, we do at Cassie... We stake a claim, I would say, to a, a unique perspective on immigration, certainly in the American context, at the southern border especially, but I think it would apply to a lot of areas, uh, a lot of uh, places in the world, in Europe for sure as well, where we say, okay, it is a pro it's appropriate to tighten borders, not draconian, not, not too fast, uh, not too severely. Uh, however, we shouldn't be doing that at all until we announce 
that we're getting off the growth path. We've recognized as a country, we, our citizens get it, our politicians are elected now that get it, that there is a limit to growth and that we're pulling out the rug from our kids and grandkids by the perpetual push for GDP growth. Then we can say, world, we can't afford to grow population time per capita. We must ratchet down the borders, but we're doing it in time now that we have some economic surplus to share. And we're going to help people in, the, in Latin America, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, places where people are desperately in need of more, more stuff. And we're going to help them there. It's not like they want to leave their homelands, you know, to come to a, a, a politically uh, hostile place in a lot of ways, like the USA and, and parts of Europe. Uh, it's that they have to, they're desperate to. So we got to help them if we're both from an ethical standpoint, that's number one. And then even if you're, if it's a self-interested uh, uh, national security standpoint, you still have to help them. That's our take is tightening of borders, but after the steady state goal is announced and concurrently with the helping of, you know, poverty-stricken populations. I recall, I think Derek Jensen said recently that it's uh, be fine for the USA to, you know, put up the borders and um, halt migration so long as it wasn't simultaneously trying to exploit other nations um, to make up for resource and trade deficits. And I think that's a key thing in there. If you are, you know, going to be staunch on your borders, well, then it is imperative that you move towards a, <laughs> a steady state economy. Yeah. And, and Michael, so we call that steady statesmanship in international diplomacy. That's our vision of 21st century sustainable diplomacy is steady statesmanship. Oh, excellent. That's, that's a new term that I'll um, pick up. And conversely, what do you typically say to the growth boosters and the eternal optimists out there who believe that innovation, technology, and wealth distribution will get us out of this mess? Yeah, so we say to them something very similar as we say uh, to those who think you're going to solve the conservation problem by throwing money at it. Remember how that backfired because of the trophic <laughs> structure? See, the, the, the missing piece of the puzzle, the, the missing component of the discussion when we talk about technology as savior or potential savior, you know, is how does it happen? <laughs> where, where does it really come from? And just like that uh, Aaron Jones with the, with the sawmill in, in Medford, Oregon, uh, technological progress isn't manna from heaven. And at this point in history, it takes tremendous amounts of investment to get anywhere in terms of increasing productive efficiency via new technology. In fact, it takes so much that in the USA, and I'm sure a number of other places, research and development, R&D, it's its own line in national income accounting. You know, it's a, very, it's a significant contributing factor to the GDP of a nation. That gives you an idea of the level of, because of that trophic, structured the level of agricultural and extractive activity that has to continually expand to continually support a growing, growing R&D sector. And that R&D sector has to grow and grow because there are such decreasing returns to scale of the R&D now because the lowest thermodynamic fruits have been picked. You know, you can't... Uh, stick a shovel in the ground in Pennsylvania and, and, get, and get oil out of there. You can't walk along the shoreline around Nome, Alaska and pick up the gold nuggets. You have to dig far and deep and drill and pollute and, and gamble, you know, with things like offshore uh, platforms and, and uh, uh, Nord 2 pipelines and this ridiculously huge kind of risky infrastructure. So uh, the technological progress, Michael, it, that ultimately uh, 
isn't a solution either. Uh, and then naturally people are going to say, well, what's your vision of technology or technological progress in a steady state economy? Frankly, it's sort of a, a vision of an evolutionary rate of technological progress rather than the revolutionary rate of technological progress that's caused the, uh, you know, the predicament that we're in now environmentally and therefore economically. Does that mean uh, under a city-state system we can expect the new Samsung <laughs> mobile phone in 10,000 years instead of six months' time? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, I won't get specific. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you've probably seen this, Michael. It's kind of refreshing in a way. We're starting to see, uh, you know, the stop sign, the ESA stop sign, we're starting to see people run in reverse a little bit now. Who is the fella up in, uh, was it Sweden or Norway, I think? Guy is developing the shipping line. That's all sailing ships. What a great example, you know, of it's backing up into prior, earlier technology mm. because it's, it's still very darn functional, but it's far more sustainable as well. And the, the only thing there is, once again, and you get this, but we have to reiterate that ultimately sustainability is primarily a matter of scale. It's about the size of the economy. It's not about what kind of technology you use. You, could have, you can have an industrial economy, even a fossil-fueled industrial economy, at a sustainable level. It'd have to be way smaller than this $90 trillion uh, monster with the greenhouse gas emissions. The point is, just like new technology uh, and throwing money at the problems isn't going, to, isn't going to solve the environmental crisis, you know, we have to work toward degrowth toward a steady state economy. And at this point, we also have to correct for some of those sectors that are particularly uh, devastating to the environment, like fossil fueling and forever chemicals and, you know, proliferation of plastics. Now we're coming to an end, like all good things, we must come to an end, including infinite growth on a finite planet and including interviews on podcasts. As far as Cassie is concerned, can we expect any exciting campaigns, adventures or even misadventures in the coming months and years? It's always a vexed question in this day and age when COVID puts a party pooper on any mass physical gathering, but nevertheless, I ask the question. <laughs> I think a bird yeah. told me you have a book on the horizon, and I'm just wondering, is that the gagging one? Yeah, there is that one, the gag-ordered no more book. Uh, we have another book on the horizon called GDP, The Untold Story, and that's going to be... a the counter-argument to all those Cato Institute-ish books out there proclaiming the, the virtues of GDP growth. You know, we're going to tell the illness that's created, the ilth, as uh, John Ruskin and Herman Daly called it, you know, the ilth of uh, growth. One chapter at a time, chapters that start with correlation of GDP with environmental problems, and then also social problems, six or eight of those, and by the time you finish reading that book, the, the correlation exercises plus the causality analysis, you would be hard-pressed to think that growth is still a good thing. Then we have uh, our uh, primary policy project. We always have policy projects going on, ranging from local to international. Our primary national-level policy project, though, is what we call the Full and Sustainable Employment Act. It's called that because if there's a central economic policy of the United States, which affects our trade, our relations with the world as well, it's the Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act of 1978. Just think, Michael, Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act. The U.S., by law, is pursuit of GDP growth. So we want that change. We're writing the major amendments to that and... We're calling it the Full and Sustainable Employment Act. That's FSEA with a little acronymical license there. We could call it the Full Seas Act because, you know, rising tide lifts all boats doesn't work. 
this century. We're running out of water for rising the tide. We're running out of boat building material and space for the boats. So the Full Seas Act, that'd be the short title of this. Yeah, and then you might appreciate a, a certain uh, communications project we have in mind. You know how the uh, Global Footprint Network has their annual overshoot day? Well, now COVID has put a real crimp in this, but if COVID, uh, you know, mellows out, then we're going to very likely see a bloating global economy again, going from about $89 trillion up to $100 trillion. So we'll have 12 increments at which the global economy hits the next trillion dollar mark. Oh, that's something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, yeah, how awful. But, uh, but we're going to call those trillion dollar days. And by the way, if you go to our website, steadystate.org, you're going to find there the only real-time rolling GDP meter in the world. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty around that, the rolling of that meter right now with COVID. But, uh, you know, before COVID and let's see, hopefully after COVID, that'll be, you know, uh, uh, as good of an estimate as you'll find out there for global GDP in real time, meaning the, the prior 12 months from that second you're looking at it. Uh, so that's where we will demarcate our trillion dollar days from. And then finally, Michael, we do have kind of a, a local project uh, called... Uh, the Keep Our Counties Great campaign. Still, to this day, there's not a lot of open discussion at the national level about limits to growth. Not in any sort of policy-relevant conversation, right? But that's not the case at the local level. We've noticed that local newspapers uh, in Virginia, where we're located, and many other states, probably most states, the local newspapers are full of explicit discussions and arguments about whether or not there should be more growth in the county, in the township, in the parish. In the... So the Keep Our Counties Great campaign is uh, something that we're, we're working on, and hopefully you will, will find parallels in Australia with our chapter directors and, and, and other chapters around the world. Well, it sounds like you're doing so much and I'm looking forward to the next 12 months with Cassie, if uh, not so much the next trillion dollars in the world's GDP, but hopefully we can all work together to put a bit of a stem to that trend. Um, so if PGAP listening folk would like to find out more about Cassie. The website is steadystate.org. And an internet search for the Steady Stater will get people to the podcast, is that right? Otherwise, go to steadystate.org and uh, you'll find a, a fairly uh, cogent menu system there starting at the top. And I think there's a menu item called follow. And then under that, you can subscribe to the, the Steady State Herald. That's our blog. You can subscribe to the podcast, the Steady Stater. You can have a look at our books under the Steady State Press. And well, fantastic. Well, we're coming to the end, um, Brian. Uh, now, on the Steady Stater, you invited me on the spot to sing. <laughs> so I <laughs> oh, I got to go, favor. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> if you, I was just say, if you want to blow the house down with a rendition of uh, Big Yellow Taxi or Little Boxes, well, don't let me stop you. Little boxes, little boxes, <laughs> little boxes, do the tiki tiki. That's the one. <laughs> Next time I'll I'll make sure I have it down. Uh, <laughs> for our yearly checkup. Yeah, yearly okay. podcast checkup. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Brian. It's been great. Thank you, Michael. Keep up the good work. You are listening to a PGAP. I'm your host, Michael Bayless, and we just heard from Brian Check, a founder of Cassie. Has Brian made a steady stater out of you yet? And if not, then why not? Justify yourself along with your thoughts and feedback by contacting PGAP on our contact page.
Better still, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We are currently 4.9 out of 5 stars. With your help, PGAP can go back to 5 or plunge all the way to 0. The power is in your hands. Abuse it wisely. Now, I mentioned in passing in the intro that PGAP passed 10,000 downloads on July the 1st, 2022, almost exactly two years after the first episode of PGAP launched on the 2nd of July, 2020, when I interviewed two of the Australian chapter directors of Cassie. All of this caused a massive dopamine rush for me, given I'm almost as partial to well-rounded numbers as I am to serendipity. Speaking of serendipity, Martin Tai, who I interviewed for that fated first episode, was appointed in, wouldn't you guess it, the 1st of July as a social media and promotions coordinator for Sustainable Population Australia. It has been an exciting challenge to reach the 10,000 milestone, coupled with the outreach struggles that independent media trends tend to have against a toxic media empire. Uh, PGAP also covers unsexy topics that don't provide that dopamine rush of escapism coupled with uncomfortable and unpopular truths that most of us prefer to avoid. But not you, dear listener, especially so if you're still listening up to this point. So, would you like to help PGAP reach 20,000 before Earth Overshoot Day reaches the 1st of January in, you know, a few years' time? Well, unlike mainstream media, PGAP can't yet bribe liberal politicians for airtime, so until then, your word of mouth is worth its weight in gold. Share this episode and PGAP with your networks, friends, family, bitter enemies and the neighbourhood cat. Everyone and everything, basically. (laughs) Consider donating to Sustainable Population Australia so that PGAP can be supported through to next year's Earth Overshoot Day, assuming we're all still around by then. Until next time, folks. Until then.